0: Lots of students come up and learn how to do hospitality, right? And what I found was my trainers were walking behind the bar and teaching them to make a mixed drink. And they would start by saying, what we're going to do is we're going to make a vodka and orange juice. So just jump behind the bar and do that. And the kids would freak out because they had no idea what vodka is. They knew what Bundy was and rum <laughs> was <laughs> and Jack Daniels, but you know, they might not know what tequila was, or they didn't know that rum was also white. Welcome to the Unfair Advantage Project. Unique perspectives, practical insights, and unexpected discoveries directly focused on giving you the unfair advantage. Introducing your hosts, Nadia Hughes and Terence Toe.
1: Welcome to the Unfair Advantage Project. I'm Terence Toe. I'm one of your co-hosts today. and I'm joined by Nadia. Good morning, Nadia.
2: I'm Nadia Hughes from Unfair Advantage Accounting, and I'm very happy to be here.
1: The rebrand, unfair advantage accounting. I love it. Yes. And today, very special guest, someone a friend of mine. I call him a friend, I reckon. Josh McKidrick, who works with experts and helps them to produce world class training. And today he's going to have a chat with us about how to clone yourself using communication frameworks. So, good morning, Josh. How are you? Terence Nadia. How are you this morning? I'm well.
2: Morning. We're
1: amazing. That's good especially Nadia.
2: Yes. Um, So you said you're helping experts. How did you come to this point when you can help experts? I can't see myself approaching experts and go, oh, hey, I can help you.
0: For me, it started in high school. (laughs) It's funny when I think back to this. So I got an amazing score in high school and high school was amazingly easy for me. I remember walking in the door with my year 12 results. And I got in the top 5% in the state and my mother's jaw hit the ground. She's like, how the hell did you do that? You never did any homework. You played basketball every night after school. I'm shocked. And I said, mom, the thing is, I know I don't study, but what I'm really good at is like, I'm a smart guy and I'm really good at systems. But what I would do is I would just find the smartest kid and hang out with them for like 45 minutes. And get them to teach me how to pass the exam. So I just extract their expertise and then I would sit to the exam and I would do it and I would get like 80 or 90% on the exam because I'm just doing what the expert did. And it was easy for me. Of course, the problem with that is three days later, the information fell out of my head, but it got me a great result, got me to university and got me out of the country town that I was in. So I've been doing it all of my life. And you keep doing it. Yeah. Well, it's really good fun. You know, I get to hang out with amazing people. I guess for me, the most important thing is my highest value is two things, learning and freedom. So I want to make sure that I'm in a career where I have a lot of freedom. I get to do what I want when I want, but I also want to learn. And I don't want to learn from institutions that teach rhetoric, the way things that have always been done. And I spent a long time at university learning that it wasn't the place for me to be. And after five and a half years, and I was at Melbourne University, a premium Australian institution, I realised that style of education was A, not what I wanted to be involved in, and not what I believed in. And what I started to do was to go and find experts to learn from. And even when I was learning from them, when they designed their training, the best learning I got was when I'd hang out with them in the breaks or have a phone call with them after the class and I could rapidly extract what I wanted to learn. And they would find in the process that they would learn a lot more about what they were doing and they'd install those conversations in their training. So it's just a kind of thing that I've always been really good at. Does that make sense?
2: It makes total sense because we are here to learn from you and you got exactly 45 minutes to teach us <laughs> everything we will forget in three days.
1: Josh, I just want to expand about wasn't working for you in terms of the learning
0: when you were you know when you're at a big institution? It was several things. One, a lot of people in a classroom, two or three hundred students, they tended to so first thing was a lot of people. The second thing is they did this thing where they thought that learning was around the quantity of the time that you spent, not necessarily the quality of the time that you spent. So every week, week I'd have to spend 36 hours in classrooms and it was just exhausting. And I felt like they were giving me, rather than giving me the 20% of information that I needed that would get the 80% of the the results, they were giving me 100% of the information and I couldn't sort the data. I didn't know what had the highest impact, what made the difference. And I just got overwhelmed with data. And so that was the second thing. The third thing is I felt like the trainers were giving me what they were really interested in not necessarily what I needed to solve the problems that I had.
1: Yeah. Yeah. I love that. So
0: what do you do differently? I cut to the chase. I call a spade a spade. If somebody offers me something and I go, it. it might be relevant later, but right now that's not what I need. So the big difference for education is if you give something to someone and they need it, they'll take it. But if they don't need it, It's really challenging for them to store it and keep it. So just park it for now. Don't give it to them. That's the big difference. Mm
2: -hmm. And I I guess we all are victims of institutions. I have (laughs) done so much official, formal education. it's, It's not even funny. What I like about what you have said is the idea of having this uniformed approach, big mass. Is collected in this theater and we're all being shoved down. Very vast knowledge, which we then have to process without any skill to process. It's normal. And then it's all a waste. And there is a rock theory also kicks in that time over quality of information. We just do our time, five years, and suddenly over, we recognize the expert in something where we, in actual matter of fact, we just done our time in the institution. Yes. Correct. That's and right. now I think it's come to the point of crisis because there are so many courses, there are so many official education as well as uh, people just set up very brief courses uh, run with it. Really, it all comes to the value of information we're receiving. Would you agree yeah.
0: with Absolutely.
2: And you want this value in very concentrated form where you can go take it and implement it straight away and fix whatever you want to fix with this knowledge.
0: That is exactly it. If I'm learning it during that day, I want to be implementing it within 24 hours to see if it works or it doesn't work, if it's valuable or if it's not.
2: So if I would be looking at solutions, dilute the knowledge, what type of solution would it be? And you want just a very concentrated version of it.
0: That's a really good way of putting it. Look, I also have this other thing, and it took me years to realize this. I can't make pictures in my head. Like, w- when I close my eyes, some people can say, picture a beach. I can't do that. It's blank in there. And I didn't know this for a very long time. Apparently, 10% of the population this is true for. Now, the problem with this is the majority of education works on memorizing things. I can't memorize. I can't make pictures. The only, I can't memorize things in my head. I can only exercise them and practice them and get the skill and then I have the body knowledge so it was really difficult for me being in an an institution where they were saying remember 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 without doing the skill so what I had to do is to build a different way of learning and I actually find that that is a really valuable way of learning and it's a better way to learn for most people so get it out of your head and get it into your body as fast as possible
2: how did you do that
0: Trial and error. <laughs> what I did is after university, I went and studied with a lot of amazing people. At the time, teaching swing and blues dancing. And so I would go to workshops on the weekends. And when I say weekends, I mean every single weekend. And I was teaching three or four nights a week. I was also working uh, in hospitality, managing a bar. And I would practice teaching with my students and serving customers. And everything I would take from the weekend, I would put into practice. A lot of what I was learning was around communication strategies and how to get people to shift and move to have a great time, be well-behaved, and to know how to operate in the spaces that I was holding them in. So in a dance class, there's etiquette, and when you're in a bar, there's etiquette, and I need to make sure that people are constantly in a good mood and being well-behaved. So learn, practice, learn, practice. That's how I did it. Yeah. What have you found is the
1: best way for maybe you to absorb information and then you to be able to teach that information.
0: What I need to hear from the person that I'm learning. Now, if this is around communication strategies, what I want to do is get very clear on what is it that they're trying to achieve and then how they go about it. What I don't necessarily want from someone is a script of what they say, but I prefer to have samples of what they say and have them chunk up to principle to go, what is When you say this thing, ultimately, what are you trying to achieve? And then I just follow the order of what they say. And if I do that, I find it's really easy to get the same result that they get. So I just kind of copy, but not verbatim at a principle-based level.
2: So can we practically just, what are you actually doing? Because I'm still not very clear. I'm very sorry. But let's just, in a practical example, how Josh can help me, a business owner, for example.
1: Well, like, so I'll hopefully help you, but... Hopefully help, not the other way around. The I quite often so when I'm speaking with a business owner, I quite often hear the phrase, I just wish I could claim myself. You know, all if the I time. could claim myself, everything would be fine. Yeah. And my response to that is probably, you know, no, that's actually not what you want. You need <laughs> to do things a little bit differently. But I think that's you know, it's it's like a common wish for someone to say, well, I know that I can do things at this level all day every day and I know that I have difficulty then passing that, that task or that project or whatever onto someone else and there, for them to be able to get the same level of success doing exactly the same thing. So really simple example would be at a sales level, right? Of course. Some people sell really well and particularly, you know, generally our business owner or an entrepreneur will be fairly good at sales, right? But then they try to pass it on and you get instant failure almost. And they they just point the finger at the person doing it. And I think what we're talking about here is that by constructing these communication frameworks, we can change the outcomes.
2: Okay, That's let's right. construct something. That's I'm
1: interested <laughs> Nadia in likes the practical side but of it. Before we do that,
0: so can I just say yeah, my yeah. version of what I heard you say then? Yeah. So I completely agree with you. There's a lot of business owners who are excellent at what they do. And most businesses were built out of just them and they've expanded and they've expanded. And what they want to do is, and I'm sure this happens when you work with them, Terrence, is that they, you know, you say, delegate, automate, give the things that you do to other people. And the business owner says, I can't because they stuff it up. Every time I give it to them, they fail. They don't get the results that I get. And because they don't get the results that I get, I can't give it to them, which means I need to hang on. And this is a a flawed strategy, because what happens is the business owner is trying to be controlling rather than trusting, but haven't resourced the person that they're trying to hand a thing over to to be able to trust them. So the purpose of a communication framework or strategy is that you say, "Here is how. Here's what I'm doing. Here's how I go about doing it," and you help the other person to be able to be you in the situation, whilst also being himself, and then you'll be able to trust them to get your results, yeah, and effectively automate. I like that, it's great. Cool, cool. <laughs> should we do one? No, so,
2: ra- I'm writing it down.
1: Nadia's still <laughs> taking notes, if Nadia's taking notes, it's a good, good indication. <laughs> That's no, good.
2: I'm not that much of a hard master. <laughs> so.
1: Yeah, so what are we going to go into? A bit of a practical example.
0: A recipe okay.
2: how to clone yourself.
0: No pressure. Okay, here's a recipe how to clone yourself. So let's actually use an, a live example. We have an expert in the room. I'm going to call you the expert today, Terence. Terence, what's a communication strategy that you use that you're amazing at? What's something that when you have this type of conversation with someone, it just goes really well every single time? I thought my, most of my conversations go pretty well. If you want to st- have a conversation with someone to get to a desired outcome, like it's a very fixed outcome and you want to move them towards that goal. Sure.
1: I think I was going to say sales, but that's too easy. I think, um, I think negotiation. Okay. You know, so negotiating win-win situation from a what might be a win-lose or lose-lose, I guess, being able to negotiate much better
0: win-win outcomes. Great. So, what we have is a sales conversation and we have a negotiating win-win. To start, the negotiating win-win is going to have more variables. So, is it okay if we start with the sales conversation for the sake of the podcast? Sure. Perfect. Okay. So, when I'm building a framework, what we're trying to do here is to take an expert piece of Terence's knowledge and convert it into a map that somebody else can follow that if they have this conversation in this order with somebody else, they'll likely get Terence's results. That's what we're going for. So the first thing that I want to do is ask, and as I'm doing this, I'm kind of drawing on my page a long rectangle with a few boxes because I'm sure there's going to be a few different segments. So Terence, what's the first thing that you do in the sales conversation? Rapport. So you do rapport. How specifically do you do rapport? Hi, how are you
1: today? Just general conversation. Hey, Josh, get to know the person a little bit. Create or the, the relationship, if the relationship's not already there, start creating some of that. Or, right. Or really, you know, just, just go a little bit deeper on the relationship.
2: It, it's a very nice civilized way. When I meet people, I shock them. I just ambush them. And, and then I click them and they follow me because they want more of this. Yeah, and it's, yeah,
0: yeah. 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 Move what right. I'm hearing is that you have two different strategies for the same outcome, which is to connect with people fast. Yeah. Yeah. So, yeah, Nadi does this, Terence does that, but the outcome is I want to connect with you. Hmm. Now, once, Terence, you're connected, what's the next thing that you do? You're in rapport. And so this is in the context of a sales conversation, right? That's correct.
1: Always important yeah. to be in context. Yeah. So the next thing will will, will be to start, looking Uh, and admittedly there's different versions of a sales conversation. So let's call this an upfront conversation with somebody who maybe doesn't know me that well. The next question is really to find out where they need help.
0: Okay. So where they need help and how might you go about finding out where they need help?
1: Yeah, you might, you might ask, uh,
0: you know, why are we having this conversation right now? Okay, great. And you're going to elicit what? Like, what have you elicited in order for you to know that you understand if they do or don't need help? What kind of things will you be hearing?
1: Yeah, so we're looking for a response. Then basically, we're trying to elicit a deeper
0: response. A deeper response, no worries. Yeah.
1: So a surface level response is, I'm not really sure. You know, this person told me I should speak with you. Mm-hmm. A deeper response is, I've recognized that I've been in business for the last 10 years and I've been doing it all myself. Mm. And although I've had some success, I've realized that I probably should be a lot more successful for my current level of ability and what I can help my clients with.
0: Perfect. So what you're doing is you're determining if they need help and you'll only do this once you get to them giving you a deeper response. Yes. Perfect. So we're in rapport. They've given me a deep response and I know they need help, then what happens?
1: Then we start looking at, I guess, the reality of the situation now.
0: Mm. So you look at the reality of the situation now, and I'm sure that they will divulge to you certain, perhaps once again, deeper and vulnerable pieces of information. Mm. And once you feel like you've unpacked the reality, then what happens?
1: Then we'll have it. I mean, for me, I'm getting a much clearer Picture. And actually, for them, they're generally getting a much clearer
0: picture of their own situation. Mm. Perfect. Once you have this clearer picture, what's the next thing that happens in this process? So we're in rapport. You've said hi. You've determined that I need help because we've gone deeper. You've asked for the reality and you're both getting a clearer picture. Now, what happens?
1: Yeah. So now we're looking at possibly where they want to be. So exactly the result that they're trying to get to.
0: Right. And once you've determined this result, and once again, they have a clearer picture and you have a clearer picture of the result, what's the next part in the sales process? What's in your way right now. Ah, what's in the way. And what do you do this, what's in the way piece of the process? What are you trying to understand for yourself and what are you helping them understand? Well, for both there's
1: two pieces because there's only a point in me working with someone if I can actually help them. Right. So, from my point of view, I want to know
0: if I can help them and how I can help them. So, this is a if, if I can and how I can. And let's say you've determined that you can, then what happens?
1: I guess then we'll move on from that point and figure out how urgent this is for them, like how much of a, um, how important it is to them right now.
0: Right. So, you're building an urgency piece here. Do you need it right now or do you need it later? Yeah, yeah, I'm sure this will help them. Now, or is it
1: important to you in
0: six years from now? Because
1: we can always have this conversation again in six years from now. But if it's important to you right now, let's let's
0: talk about that. And let's say that it is urgent, then what happens?
1: Yeah, so then we're moving on to the next piece where we're basically just, for me, I'm just clarifying all of the previous points. I'm just going back through and and clarifying with them that I've actually got the conversation right
0: and, and that I've got a full understanding. And, that, and also that they've got a full understanding on this. So I feel like this we're getting to the point of the sale now. We're getting to the sticky end of this framework. At the moment, you've had a conversation with them. You're in rapport. You've determined that they, they need help because they've gone deeper. You have a clearer picture of their reality and their goal, and you understand what's in the way and if you can help and how you can help. You've determined yep. it's earned, and then you go back through and you clarify everything. Perfect. What happens
1: next? The next piece is really just the only thing I'm selling from this conversation is another conversation. So there's no uh, hard sell here. But, but the next piece is say, okay, well, and I would have made it clear from the outset that this is only going to lead to another conversation. There's, no, there's nothing to buy right now. Right. And it's either, uh, yes, you know, there is synergy here. We're a fit to work together. I can see how we can do it. And I make sure that, of course, they're on the same page.
0: From that point, that's it. Perfect. And I'm assuming that they'll agree to have another conversation with you where you can get closer to actually doing the transactional purchase.
1: Yeah. So, pr- yeah. provided, of course, that there is something for us to work on and it makes sense for us to work on. So, if any of those pieces don't work, you know, if it's not urgent for them, like I said, if they say, I want to do it in two years' time, that's totally cool. We can Quite. do it in two years' time, but there's no point asking. Talking about it now because so much can change within the next two years.
0: Of course. So what I'm hearing here is that you're getting in rapport with the people, that you're pre-framing, that you're only selling another conversation right now. You determine if they need help, their reality, their goals, what's in the way, if it's urgent, and then you clarify everything. Mm -hmm. And then if there's been ticks all the way along, then you say, great, look, I think we'd be a good fit and then I can help. How about we arrange another time to chat? Mm. Does that sound about right? Yes. Perfect. Okay, here's the thing. So this sounds like a great sales framework and I'm just looking at it and I'm comparing it to some of the other frameworks that I've worked with when I've done with other experts who are great at selling. And what I'm seeing is some universal principles stand out. Mm-hmm. Get in rapport, make sure that you put up front what is the outcome of this conversation, standing where the clients are at, is it urgent and uh, moving into the selling the next conversation. Here's the thing. When you see other people trying to do a sales conversation, where do you see them getting this wrong? Do they miss a box? Do they get the boxes out of order? What happens?
1: Uh, Yeah. So when I'm in a sales conversation, uh, Nadia Nadia just mentioned something from from another podcast that we did a while back with Ivan Meisner, something that came up called premature solicitation. And it's probably true. (laughs) (laughs) The, The premature solicitation is where I think a lot of people come undone because. Just realizing that we need to really take people through this entire process to make sure that it's a fit before we go and try to even make them an offer. It's like I I think where I see a lot of other people come undone is that they don't have a full understanding of someone's situation, you know, if they can help them and exactly how that looks before they even make an offer and that's the whole point.
2: I guess there is a where they get undone for me, where I see, if I may interject here. Of course. Um is They basically trying to sell. This is where I look at it and go, yes, we all call it sales process, but reality is you have to move so far away from this old-fashioned sales technique and aggressiveness of this push. You have to intrigue more and uh, want them to talk to you more. This is what Terence is exactly doing. He's not committing them at the beginning uh, to buy anything. He's uh, um, securing another conversation where he can get more clear understanding of their needs rather than sell them something. He wants to resolve for them something.
1: Yeah. I think we've had a bit of a conversation before this about this in the past, Josh. I think we see a lot of people focusing on the products Mm -hmm. and not the problems. And so when you become the solution to the problem, it's a different type of a sale. I mean, you go to a specialist, you know, a medical specialist, because you have a problem and they have the solution and That's a completely different... It's funny that we don't tend to think of those as being sales conversations, but there is definitely an exchange of value. And generally, there's an exchange of large amounts of money, right? So, (laughs) but it's interesting that, you know, we don't see that as being a sales conversation. And because we don't tend... A lot of people don't view that as a sales conversation. um, They view sales as being something different to that, but that's exactly what sales is.
0: Mm, Got it. So, yeah, what I see is as I said, a universal framework going on here. What's interesting for me, Nada, and what you included, was that it's one thing to have this framework sitting in front of you of basically like steps to follow. What I have written in front of me on my iPad here, and if you did hear clicking in the background, that's me tapping away with my pen, is I've kind of got got nine boxes in front of me. Whenever I'm building a framework, it's a three-by-three grid, I always think about it as paddocks. And at any stage that I'm going through a conversation with somebody, I'm just moving them from paddock to paddock to paddock, making sure that I get the result that I want from the first paddock before I move them to the second paddock, i.e. if we're not in rapport, I can't pre-frame that we're going to sell a conversation. If I haven't pre-framed, I can't ask them if they need help. If I haven't determined if they need help or gone deeper, I can't ask them for reality. So I'm always moving them from step to step to step. So that's the first thing. The second thing that Nadia offered was really important, and that is even if someone was to follow the framework, if they're not in the right mindset, if they're not thinking about the framework in the right way, it's not going to work because it's one thing to do the practice, but it's also important to adopt the belief of the expert. And as Nadia said, even though we call it sales, we're moving as far away from the transactional sale as possible. And that's so important. So it's one thing to have this framework. And the second thing is to have the mindset. Does that make sense? Yes, yeah, it does. we're following. Perfect. It. You're writing stuff down. <laughs> so
2: can I just um, ask you about those nine products? Do you have them named, labeled those products?
0: Yeah. So what I would do, let, let's talk now about how to transition this. It's one thing to unpack it from the expert and tidy it up so it would make sense to somebody else. Now, what I need to do is, and let's think about the context of your client. They would need to, and we're assuming in this context that they're the expert. So, if I was sitting opposite them, I would get them to perform their piece of expertise composition in front of me. It's just a plane going overhead. And I would capture it and I would build it. And then I would say, you need to present this to a staff member. So, for them to get the same results or a team member, I would first of all label each of the box at the level of principle. So, the first box might be greet and meet. The second box might be pre frame. The third box might be reality, goal in the way, urgent, clarify, ask. They're probably the names for the boxes. (laughs) In the middle of the box, I would not put a script. Scripts will get people tongue-tied. I would put a few bullet points that kickstart the thought. Like if you get stuck in the conversation, you look at a word and it triggers what to say next. And finally, at the bottom of the box, I would put what's the outcome of doing this paddock? How do I know when it's time to move on? I.e. When I greet and meet, I can move on when we're in rapport. When I preframe, I can move on and they agree that I'm just playing the conversation. When it comes to reality, I can move on when we both have a clearer picture. So you have what's it called at the top, the principle, some keywords words to kickstart conversation, not a script in the middle, and at the bottom, success criteria, how do you know it's time to move to the next paddock? And then you have a beautiful framework. And if you give that to someone else and give them the mindset they'll be able to follow you in fidelity. They'll do a really great job of doing what you do. And I've done this time and time and time again with multiple experts. And I've done it with, I go into corporate institutions and train senior leaders at BHP, ANZ, NAB. And I also help business coaches teach these frameworks to admin and reception staff. Every single person with different levels of education, if you give them a good framework, can repeat the results of an expert. They don't need to be a genius. You just need a great framework.
1: I love where you went with the beliefs as well. Do you have any tips on installing the beliefs?
0: That's it. Just be really honest about what you're trying to do. Don't bullshit. If you're trying to build a framework, and I did this with someone yesterday who's in the real estate industry. He built a framework, his ideal version of himself on an ideal day with an ideal client. And when we road tested it, it didn't hold up. It needs to be what would happen on an average day with an average client who's in an average mood. It needs to hold up in the case of somebody who might not be receptive to what you're trying to do. So when you're installing the mindset, you need to get real, be honest, and get very clear on what it is you're trying to achieve from the conversation.
2: Hmm. I was thinking that real estates are the best salespeople they have so many coaching sessions and everything. I listen to real estate.
0: It's true. Time. But here's a question. Hands up right now if you trust real estate agents. Yeah, that's what I thought. <laughs> so well, are they amazing unless sales? Unless
2: you had a very good experience. For example, I had a very good experience with my real estate agent and it's, there is always one.
0: <laughs> yeah, that's true. And so Todd Duncan, I heard a great episode from him 10 years ago about high trust selling. And I think that you know, in, in what Terence is doing is he's doing high trust selling. At the end of this sales process, I go, Terence is a great guy. I trust him to help me. And I'm looking forward to the next conversation that I have with him. And so the conversation I had with the real estate agent yesterday was, and you know what? Eight of his nine boxes were high trust, but one of them, he was bullshitting me. And that would have lost all of my trust as the receiver of that conversation. So we tied that box and made it trust, and now the whole thing stood up. Because you guys know how trust works. It only takes, you know, it might take 10 years to build up and one moment to knock down. And you want to make sure your framework is high trust all the time.
2: And what's the difference between high trust and the situation when you don't trust people? The high trust attributes of high trust conversation.
0: Yeah. So I think about this, like... <laughs> I'm a trainer. I'm a pure breed trainer facilitator and I hang out with a lot of salespeople. And what I see is the strategies that people use for sales are very similar to the strategies that they use for training. However, your outcomes are often different. Sometimes with sales, we want to stretch the gap and build the need. And in training, we want to close the gap so they can replicate the results. For a salesperson, I sometimes feel they walk you to the top of the mountain and say, anytime you want to come back here, You can pay me a fee and I'll bring you here. And a trainer says, I'll walk you to the top of the mountain. You now know how to do this on your own. You're resourced. Go for it. Regardless of whether you're selling or you're training, you always want to remove resistance. You want to make it as easy as possible, a complete no-brainer for people to walk with you in the process. So they're consistently open-minded to receiving what it is that you have to give to them. And I've seen trainers and salespeople alike who are, remarkably gifted at this process and it's because every single panic that they have removes resistance removes resistance removes resistance high trust yeah and there's another thing i think it
1: came up on the the episode that with ken akazaki which was uh he's a smart guy he's a smart guy (laughs) and basically everything that you do needs to build trust so it's, it's so you can ask yourself that question every time you do something are you building trust it's a good filter
0: It's a great filter. And if you map this like a sales conversation, but before you said, I'm amazing at doing a negotiation conversation. And I guarantee that if we unpack that, which we're probably not going to do now, that high trust to get win-win would be a primary mindset that you're running when you're doing negotiation. Am I right? Yeah, sure. Yeah, of course.
1: Yeah. Actually, that probably comes back a lot to the beliefs. And the the belief is to try to, Get the best outcome for everyone involved mm. so if you actually believe if you're legitimately trying to do that then it's easy to gain the trust because everything you do if when you talk about beliefs everything you do is aligned with that so it's mm. really really simple
0: that's right yeah
2: josh can i just make you very relatable to the audience <laughs> by asking you what do you see most common mistakes out there when you're trying to train somebody you always come there and you can identify pretty quickly what the, the, the common issues uh, would be among people who are yeah. trying to replicate the skill and what are my, my most common struggles around it. The
0: biggest struggle when people try to train is they look at the world from their own perspective, not the person that they're giving the training to. And they presuppose knowledge, like they think that the other person knows stuff that they probably don't. 12 years ago, I was designing training for a hospitality training company, and we had a lot of students from Frankston and the pines outside of Frankston. And for those of you that live in Melbourne, you know that Frankston is, or was, a low economic suburb, and the level of education yes, was there
2: are more homeless in the middle of the, uh, Melbourne. It's, an- <laughs> it's an interesting.
0: The beach is beautiful. We're getting into... Right. So lots of students come up and learn how to do hospitality, right? And what I found was my trainers were walking behind the bar and teaching them to make a mixed drink. And they would start by saying, you know, what we're going to do is we're going to make a vodka and orange juice. So just jump behind the bar and do that. And the kids would freak out because they had no idea what vodka is. In Frankston, they don't... Well, maybe they knew what Bundy was and rum (laughs) was... and Jack Daniels, but you know they might not know what tequila was or they didn't know that rum was also white. And what we had to do is backpedal our education and not presuppose any knowledge. So at the end of the day, the way that we first taught people was with the simplest mixed drink possible, which is take any glass, fill it with ice, take any spirit, put 30 mils in it, take any soft drink, put it in it, and then put it on the bar. And only once they understood the basic flow five steps to make a mixed drink then we started to teach them about the separation between well here's your seven primary spirits here's your five primary soft drinks here's your two or three different types of glasses if you walk in with here's three glasses here's seven spirits here's five soft drinks people's brains go because they can't compute that much data if they don't already know the individual chunks so i always say backpedal it to the Baseline. What do people need to know? Too much information too soon. Did that make any sense?
2: Absolutely. (laughs) As a graduate, I came to the accounting office trying to do what I learned from at uni, and none of it was making sense. So people were talking at me and giving me instructions, and they were throwing very specific. Well, they were speaking around me, accountanese and I couldn't understand any (laughs) of it because none of the Terms were matching my book description, textbook description. So I was very lost for probably one month. I was crying in a toilet Mm. thinking, what the hell I'm going to do? I just survived. They survived. They put me in a back office to do some admin. That was fun. (laughs) Uh, And for half a year, in six months, I was good.
0: This is a lot of people's experience when it comes to education. So how does this apply to the people who are listening to this podcast? There's a really smart fella In the speech and training world, his name's Matt Church, and he uses a phrase called smarten it down. Don't try and be smart on your framework that you're building to give to someone else. Make it as simple and user-friendly as possible. Like if someone on day two could do your framework without a lot of education, it's a great framework. It needs to be a phrase that I use is make it eight-year-old easy. My eight-year-old, look, he's sure he's got a silver tongue. He's got the gift of the gab. But I feel like if I taught him Terence's framework, he could do it, and that means it's a great framework.
1: What are the situations where that is not going to work?
0: People don't believe your mindset, or they don't believe you. So they go, "No, the
1: beliefs." Basically,
0: my way's better. That's when it's not going to work. Look, honestly, if people just shut up and do your framework. If you're an expert and the framework works, like let's assume that you are an expert and the framework works, then it will work. Yeah, if they get the mindset right. Look, it also takes practice. What happens sometimes is you give people a framework. Okay, here it is. I see business owners give like administration or a reception person a framework to run and two things. One, it's in the business owner's best interest, not the administration or the receptionist's best interests. And it's not something that the business owner would like to do. Oh, yeah, let's say you're working at a healthcare clinic And you want to call all of the customers who haven't been to your clinic in the last year. So you're basically doing not cold calls, but not exactly warm calls either. And they don't want to do it themselves. So they give it to their admin person and say, here's the framework, run the framework. And the admins feels uncomfortable about it because it's a bit of a crap job. What makes this work well is if the expert, the business owner sits down and makes a handful of phone calls themselves in front of the person to say, A, say, I will do this work, B, here is examples of me doing it, and C, it's not all bad and it actually works in your best interest because the more customers, the more job stability you have, the more interesting your work is. So you want to sell the framework inside of the value of the person that you're giving it to. Hmm. Mm.
1: Can I add to that as well? One of the other challenges that I sometimes see is that with that, Sometimes it's a little bit more difficult in that type of situation. It's work that you obviously don't want to do mm. and handing it off and getting someone else engaged. So part of that process can also be to get the person who's actually doing it to help build out the framework,
0: right? That's a great idea. With the development. Yeah, a, a good friend and a client of mine, his name is Jesse Green. He runs business coaching for dentists. He has a very large community. It's called Savvy Dentist. Amazing guy, amazing training. He calls that engage hearts and minds. And you're absolutely right. If they can help you in the building of the framework, they will have much more ownership of it. Because if I give it to someone, it still belongs to me. But if they generate it themselves, it belongs to them. Yes. Yeah. Totally. Good strategy, Terrence. (laughs) (laughs) Thanks, mate. No worries. All right.
2: And we were talking about these most common mistakes. So, so far, I... Put on the, keep it simple, yeah. go to the level of the person who is going to learn, don't talk um, at them. Um, but go on to the level of their values as well, make it valuable to them rather mm. than assume that they will carry on with your values and help involve them in building a framework.
0: Yeah, engage them in keep the process. Give
2: ownership onto them. Perfect. Yeah, this will be an engaging process. Any other very useful tools, please? <sighs>
1: Goodness. Oh. That's an open question. To ask. <laughs> Can I Let just narrow that question down a little bit? Sure. What's one action that our listener could take, someone listening to this? Yeah, good call. To get started and to get things moving fast, particularly if they're having difficulty offloading some of these things that they, you know, they might be good at them, whatever, or, or maybe not so good at them, but either way they may not yep. have time to continue doing it.
0: So, yeah, look, I know this is something that you do with your clients, Terence. is you go, you sit down and you say, hey, what's something that you're good at, but it's also might just be outside of your zone of genius and you want to give to somebody else. And let's say, it is that sales conversation or something else? I would say, first of all, identify the thing that you want to hand over, the conversation that you want to hand over. And then I would say, sit opposite someone who you know and trust, who can type or write quite fast. And role-play the conversation with them and just have them capture. You might even record it, right? And then you look at what you've written and start to build the paddocks around the script. Yeah. And then you realize that what you're trying to do is that you have like stages that you're taking someone through in the conversations and then title it, reduce the scripts to some prompts and put your success criteria. And then what you'll start to do is build out your framework. So start by role play, capture, build the paddocks around the edge, and then turn it into a framework. A six box or a nine box framework works really well. Then give it to the other person that you just worked with and get them to practice it on someone to see if it works. And once you know that it starts to work, then you might start to involve team members. You might give it to a couple of team members who you know and trust to get them to try it out. And then get them to make their adjustments so it be- becomes a universal tool, not just your piece of expertise. And what you'll find is that your paddocks won't change, but the language inside of the boxes will slightly change. And as soon as you change language, it owns it, the person whose language it is owns it.
1: I think you've just built out a framework for unpacking IP. I'm sure you've got a better one than this, but what I got out of that was identify. Yeah. So number one, identify exactly what it is. Secondly, capture the IP thirdly build the framework around it fourthly test it
2: I was thinking thinking that he's just building
0: (laughs) and then test it the test has two phases the beta test and then there's the handed over to the team and a continuous improvement test yep good call yeah so then the continuous improvement I love it and then once you've handed over one framework I believe Terence, you would call that an asset (laughs) yes I would
1: Yes, I totally would. Yeah, I've been, yeah, we've been doing a lot of work and Josh has been involved with some of this work potentially about, yeah, building assets in our business. And these frameworks are definitely, they can be a massive asset because they, they can give you such a,
0: so much leverage and help you to scale so much better. I look I think about an asset as alchemy, right? An alchemist turns lead into gold or an alchemist turns something that's not gold into money. And when you build a communication framework and you hand it to someone else, you are taking an idea and turning it into tangible dollars, either because you don't need to be there and you can do more high value activity, or if it's a sales process, you're actually turning your idea into money. So this is alchemy as far as I'm concerned, taking an idea and converting it to cash. We can call it an asset and not alchemy, but that's basically what it is. Yeah, I love that. Yeah. Amazing.
1: All right. Did you have any other questions?
2: I don't have questions. I just thought we might come up with a very good catch title, Alchemist of Communication.
1: (laughs) (laughs) How to alchemize your business? I don't know. We'll figure that out. Yeah. Josh, I want to thank you for your time today. This has been really, really valuable, really helpful. And we've actually built out a couple of frameworks, I've realized, while we've been on this conversation. So that's been pretty cool. Great. I'll take 10% profit on everything. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> we'll certainly credit you with those frameworks. And <laughs> probably the last question is how can our listener get in contact with you? Connect.
0: Uh, sure. Look, I have a website. It's www. or tridub. or josh at rockstartrainers.com.
2: Thank you very much.
0: That's a pleasure. Good awesome. fun. Thanks, Josh. Thanks for listening to the Unfair Advantage Project. For more curated resources, visit us at unfairadvantageproject.com.